What if you could live Jesus' teachings perfectly? Would you be a good Christian? I heard somebody uh, recently make the comment, I, I wish I was a better Christian. And I thought, yeah, me too. I, I, I hope we all do. If you're a follower of Christ, I hope there's something inside you that says, I, I want to be a better follower of Christ. I want to listen to what he teaches and I want to obey it. Jesus was a great teacher. And we've been studying this topic of wisdom and wisdom literature, mostly in the Old Testament, but we're going to go now to the New Testament. Because when you speak about wisdom literature, wisdom teaching in Scripture, you can't ignore the phenomenal teaching of Jesus Christ. He was a great teacher. You know, if you ask somebody, uh, what's your favorite class or what was your favorite class in high school or college, a lot of times the answer will have a lot to do with the teacher. Is that fair to say? I know people that don't like, maybe even hate, specific topics simply because they had a bad teacher. I know for myself, uh, I took a class in high school called British Literature. I couldn't stand literature, uh, let alone British literature. I hated reading novels at that time. And I had a phenomenal teacher. And he started his class by saying, you don't really need to know any of this but it will make you look cool when you hang out with your friends. I was hooked. I was like, really? This is wonderful. And I loved British literature. I just poured over it. It was wonderful. And now I love literature. And I got into Russian literature in college and Dostoevsky. I just love good literature. And I think it goes back to a teacher that was phenomenal. I've shared with you before, one of my favorite subjects in high school was physics. And a lot of that had to do with my physics teacher, Mr. Wegley. He was a phenomenal guy. He was a great friend and a mentor. I had him for two years, physics and advanced physics. And I just loved it. He showed me what a Christian could look like in a secular environment because he was a wonderful Christian guy. He would show up to our student-led Bible studies. He would come to see you at the poll. He was just a great guy. And he was a great teacher. He loved the subject. He loved physics. He loved science, but more than that, he loved helping others fall in love with it. I know some teachers that love the subject that they're talking about, but you listen to them and your eyes just sort of glaze over and you go, I could not be here and you wouldn't even notice because they're just so passionate about what they're talking about and going on and on and on, but they're totally ignoring the fact that you're trying to learn. You ever met people like that? Don't point fingers, but you can raise hands. A good teacher loves to teach, is good at teaching, and I would say really loves their students. Now, some say, correctly, Jesus was a great teacher. And certainly he was. Jesus was a great teacher. In fact, Scripture in the New Testament records over and over again when Jesus taught, people were amazed. They would walk away from hearing him teach going, wow, I've never heard anything like that. This guy teaches totally different than anything uh, like anybody else that I've ever heard. But was Jesus just? And there's a good important question. That's the word right there, just. Was Jesus just a good teacher? So I'll return to the question with which I began. What if you could live Jesus's teachings perfectly? Because if Jesus is just a good teacher, and then you could just live what he taught perfectly, well, you're all set. 
you'd have a phenomenal, amazing life, right? And if we think that way, we are profoundly missing one of the most important truths of the entire Bible. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The wisdom of of Jesus. What is it that the wisdom of Jesus hinges on? What is the crux of it? What is the foundation of everything that he taught? Because if we miss that, we're going to miss all the rest of it. Jesus taught in a style that could be called a wisdom genre. People of the day would have recognized his teaching as as like their sages and their teachers and their rabbis. He used parables and stories and illustrations. He applied these profound truths to everyday life. They would have been familiar with that style of teaching. But there's a big difference in the wisdom of Jesus that separates his teaching from everything else. And that's what I want to look at this morning. So hopefully you're open to Matthew chapter 13. We want to start with the idea that Jesus' wisdom is a hidden wisdom. Now, I don't mean hidden in terms of a secret code that you have to seek out. If you could add up all the vowels and all the consonants and you read it backwards at a slow speed, you would learn about Jesus. Not that kind of hidden. But let's look at what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 13 verses, I'm going to go 10 through 12. Uh, Actually, 10 through 17 we'll look at. The context here is Jesus is teaching in parables. He's telling stories almost like riddles, but they're stories that don't seem to make a lot of sense at the outset. Specifically, he's just told the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, he talks about a farmer scattering seed, but some places it falls are good, some places not so good, and and so some places the, the plants grow and some places they don't. And he starts that whole thing out, or he uses this to illustrate that this is a teaching about the kingdom. And his disciples go, huh? What? And so they ask him, let's look at the text here, Matthew 13, starting in verse 10. They say, the disciples came to him and asked, why? Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now catch what Jesus is saying. He's saying, disciples, you have something nobody else has. I'm teaching in such a way that you will get it and nobody else will. Does that strike you as a good teacher? I mean, really, shouldn't a teacher just want everybody to get it? Let's go on. Look at verses 13 through 15. He explains with this wonderful, just uplifting quote from Isaiah. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Sounds like a parent to a child. Uh, For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. Notice what Jesus is saying there. I am speaking in parables so that you, my disciples, will understand because you have something that they don't have. And I don't want them to hear what I'm saying and get it right away because they're going to miss it. 
And so I speak in parables. He goes on, verses 16 through 17. He says, But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Now, it would be easy to take this and say, well, obviously the disciples have the teachings of Jesus and that's what they're getting that nobody else has. Well, that's true of the people in the Old Testament, but it's not true of the people of Jesus' day. The people in Jesus' day would follow him around and would hear him teach. They would see the miracles. They saw many of the things the disciples saw, and yet Jesus says they won't get it. Something is hidden that they won't understand. Now, Jesus wanted people to know about the kingdom. This was a truth that was so much on his heart that when he first began to preach, Matthew chapter 4.17 records that it's the first thing he taught about. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So why would Jesus purposely hide his message in such a way that he knew some people would not get it and others would? Because that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is why I teach in parables. Well, to help us, Let's look at the longest sermon of Jesus that we have in Scripture. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. Because here, really, I would say, is the core of Jesus' teachings. There's a lot of other ones, and I'm not trying to dismiss it. But if we look here, we'll see sort of the essence of what Jesus is teaching when he taught wisdom and applied it to their lives. And here, I believe, we'll see the big difference between his wisdom and other wisdom. And something that really strikes me as I read through the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus' wisdom is inside out and upside down. It's inside out and upside down. It is completely backwards from the way the world looks at things. Now, I need to give a little disclaimer. Yesterday, the guys got together for breakfast, and Dan Doucette led us in a devotional, and he taught on the Beatitudes. And as soon as he started teaching, I thought, oh, I've just got to bite my tongue because I knew I was going to preach on it this morning and I didn't want to just, I mean, you get a pastor talking about a sermon, you get the whole thing. There's like, there's no shutting off the water hose at that point. So I just tried to sit there. But also, I did actually intend to preach on this before he talked about it. So I didn't just sit there taking notes and go, oh, this will be great. I'm going to use this tomorrow. (laughs) Just saying, okay? But let's look at this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is very much a wisdom teaching. It is very typical of that day and their types of wisdom teaching. It's very practical. It takes these timeless, eternal truths and it applies it to day-to-day life. It pulls things out of the Old Testament and applies it and explains it. It is very typical wisdom teaching. And for Jesus, this teaching, the whole Sermon on the Mount, really centers on the kingdom of heaven and all of Jesus' teaching. What is the kingdom of heaven? Because here begins to get at the heart of why Jesus' wisdom was different than the worldly wisdom. When the people of the world, and even the disciples struggled with this, when they heard the idea of kingdom, they thought, right here, right now, get rid of these Roman soldiers, get rid of the Roman governors, get rid of these awful Herod guys, get rid of all of it. We want the kingdom of heaven here and now. It will be awesome. This will be great. What do we need to do right now to bring the kingdom? 
And Jesus' teaching, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, blows that out of the water and says, you don't get it. My kingdom is inside out, and it is upside down. Let's look at the Beatitudes and look at this upside-down kingdom. Because as you read the Beatitudes, as we read the Beatitudes, we need to see that it is a complete change from the way the people would have thought. And it looks to me like I missed... Oh yeah, we're going to start in verse 3 here. Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now in order to understand this, we need to understand a little bit about blessed. Because there's a dual thing going on here, kind of a dual meaning. First of all, we need to put ourselves in the place of the people hearing this. The word blessed would have understood or be understood to have meant basically a good life. How do you judge somebody's life? How do you look at them and say they're happy, they're, they're well put together, they're living correctly, they're, they're just, they've got it all together. That's kind of what they would have thought as blessed. Now I'm not saying that's necessarily what Jesus was saying. In fact, it's not at all. But that's what they would have thought. How do you judge somebody's life? If you go out into your community, or if you're at work and somebody's telling you about their marriage, their home, their job, whatever it is, and you go, wow, they've got a good life. What's your standard for that? Because that's what he's getting at here. When he uses the word blessed, and then he explains what blessing really looks like, he's getting at the standard of what is a good life. And everything that he says is completely opposite from the way the world would think. It's completely upside down. Let's look at these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, the teachers, the religious teachers loved to walk around and show how righteous they were. They were rich spiritually. They were amazing. They had studied everything and they lived it out. Every jot, every tittle. They lived out every little minor thing in the law and every major thing. They were amazing and they wanted everybody to know it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, the world would have looked at the Pharisees and said, oh my goodness, they have a blessed life because look how spiritual they are. And Jesus said, just like you can have a poverty related to your money and your belongings, he said there is a poverty that relates to your spirituality. When you look at yourself and you say, why in the world should God accept me? I have nothing to offer him. That's what it means to be spiritually poor. To recognize that you are impoverished in spirituality. And Jesus says, that person who gets that truth and says, I bring nothing to God whatsoever, don't look to me as an example of righteousness, that person is blessed. Do you see the difference? This was shocking. But let's look at some of the other ones. 
in this upside down kingdom. Verse four, those who mourn will be comforted. Only those who truly experience mourning will understand the, the rescue of Jesus Christ. Now, if you saw somebody that was just sad and everything was falling apart and they're going through difficulties time after time after time, you would say, oh man, that's a rough life. You wouldn't look at them and go, man, I want to be just like you. That's a great life. You'd look at them and say, oh man, I hope things turn around. Jesus says, no, that person's blessed. They're depending on God. Chapter Verse 5, the meek will inherit the earth. Not those who try to get ahead. Not those who clamor after uh, political power. But those who are meek, they will inherit the earth. Verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Not those who already think they're righteous. Not those who say, look how great I am, but those who say, I am desperately lost. Verse 7, those who are merciful will be shown mercy. Not the powerful and the influential that everybody looks at them and says, well, of course they're going to get away with that. I mean, they'll be let off the hook because look how powerful and, and rich they are. And Jesus says, no, it's the merciful. Verse 8, the pure in heart will see God. Not those who do these outward righteous acts that everybody says they're amazing, but those who inwardly have a pure heart. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount really is going to speak about that issue. Verse 9, the peacemakers will be called children of God. Literally there it is sons of God. And this is profound because if a Jewish person at that time were to take out one of their Roman coins, right on it would have a picture of the Roman emperor and it would say the son of God. Because the emperors were given this wonderful title of kind of more than human. It didn't necessarily mean a God, but it meant something more than just a human. Well, their children thought that was pretty cool. So he's more than just human. He's like God-like. Well, that makes me a, oh, that makes me the son of God. You better listen to me. Because they were powerful. And they would kill their brothers and sisters that would try to overthrow them. They would eliminate any sort of threats. And Jesus says, that's not the sons of God. That's not my children. My children are those who make peace. It's completely upside down. Verse 10, those who are persecuted because of righteousness own the kingdom of heaven. Not those who are treated well because of how religious they are, but those who suffer. How profoundly Jesus would fulfill this himself when he would take upon himself the worst Roman persecution they could possibly imagine. The thing that would say that person is not blessed at all. Nobody looks at somebody on a cross and goes, oh man, they've got the good life right there. I just want to be just like them. They look at somebody on a cross and go, look away. Don't, Don't even look at them. There's so much shame and embarrassment there. There's no blessing there whatsoever. But Jesus says, no. When you are persecuted because of righteousness, Verses 11 and 12, blessed are those who suffer for Christ because they have a great reward in heaven. This is another theme he'll pick up later when he says, it's not about the rewards here. The Beatitudes shape the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything depends on this upside down understanding of the kingdom, but there's more. The kingdom's not just upside down, it's completely inside out. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, the Beatitudes are applied. These people, these people that the world would look at and say, oh, you're nothing. 
You're, you're just poor in spirit. You're, you're suffering. You're mourning. You're, you're nothing. Jesus says, those people, those beatitude people, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Can you grasp that for a second? I mean, if people in the Roman day would have said, who should you look to as an example? Oh, look to the, the Caesar. Look to the governor. Look to the Pharisees. They're the examples. And Jesus says, uh-uh. Not even close. He goes on in 17 through 20. He talks about the law. Is Jesus replacing the law? Is it worthless? And he's just wiping it away? Jesus says, no. I'm talking about what it's really about. Because the law was not just a recording of teaching. There was something more there. Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. But how is that possible? How would it be possible to be more righteous than the most righteous people of their day? Come on, Jesus. That's a high standard. Well, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount explains that inside-out kingdom. Verses 21 through 26 talks about true law keepers not only do not murder, but inwardly do not even hate. The law applies to the inside attitude, not just an outward act. It's about the heart. Verses 27 through 30, true law keepers not only do not commit adultery, but inwardly they do not even lust. Again, it's about the heart. True law keepers, verses 31 through 32, not only follow the letter of the law regarding divorce, but they don't use divorce as a means of getting something that they want. They don't just commit adultery and say, oh, I don't need you anymore. I like her. So I'm going to follow the letter of the law. I just have to sign this paper and boom, I'm done with you. <laughs> I'm on to something else. Jesus says, no, that's not what it was ever about. You're completely missing the point. Verses 33 through 37, true law keepers not only keep their oaths, but inwardly they consider every word that they say is an oath. So don't, don't say, I promise. You shouldn't have to say, I promise, because every word you speak is a promise, because you uphold truth in your heart. Verses 38 through 42, the true law keepers not only correctly seek retribution, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, there's a justice there. But Jesus says, but seek to be generous. Give above and beyond. Don't just seek justice. Seek generosity and grace. Have a heart that overflows with generosity rather than just trying to do what you must. And then in chapter 6, he goes on. He gives several examples of don't seek earthly wealth. Don't seek a kingdom here. Seek the wealth of heaven. Seek the glory of heaven Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, he talks about acts of righteousness. They're not done publicly. They're not so that everybody looks at you and says, oh, you're so amazing. I think we still struggle with this as Christians today. I hope somebody sees me praying over my meal. I, I hope somebody sees me showing up to church. I hope somebody sees me dropping this in the offering plate. I, I hope they see me. I want to be a good testimony of Jesus Christ. Yes, of course we do. But Jesus uses this word in this passage over and over again. It's the word secret. Jesus says your acts of righteousness should be done in secret because you're not doing them for other people. You're doing them for God. The Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, he says prayer is not to be done to be heard publicly, but to be heard secretly by God. 
Verses 16 through 18, fasting is not done so others can see, but secretly only to please God. It's inside out. Verses 19 through 21, treasures shouldn't be sought on earth, but sought in heaven. 22 through 34 is about this new perspective. God knows what we need and we should trust him for it. And then chapter 7 goes into judge yourself first. Seek good things from God. Enter through the narrow gate and talks about bearing good fruit. And then look at chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. He says, whoever therefore, or therefore anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Did you see it there? The upside down, inside out kingdom. Jesus comes along and he's telling them, guys, you've got it all wrong. You're so busy trying to do all these right things, but you've completely neglected your heart. You've absorbed the world's way of looking at happiness and looking at what it means to be blessed. And you're missing your desperate need for God and your desperate need for your heart to be changed. The kingdom is not according to the world's principles or standards. It's not about what people see or about some earthly kingdom. So Jesus teaches a wisdom that is in some ways hidden and is some ways upside down and is in some ways inside out. But why? What's at the core of all of this? Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Let's look at the ultimate question. I believe that in many ways the book of Matthew is all about what we're about to look at right here. This is the theme of the book of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus asks his disciples, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Listen, you can't just take Jesus's teachings, say thank you, Jesus, Walk away and try your hardest to apply it to your life. Will it work in some ways? Sure. Will you probably have a better life? Probably. Even the secular world writes books about leading like Jesus. How do we lead like Jesus? How do we serve others like Jesus? And they ignore the fact that he's the Messiah, that he died on the cross, but they say, we'll just take his teachings. Jesus actually taught in such a way to avoid that. He didn't want people to just take his teaching. He wanted people to understand him. He didn't want people to just accept his teachings. He wanted people to accept him as their Messiah, as their King, as their Savior. You cannot just live Jesus' teachings 
without accepting Jesus. It misses the whole point. We see this at Jesus' birth, Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Matthew starts right off after this genealogy where he's talking about where does Jesus come from and why is he qualified to be this earthly king to sit on the throne of David. But then he goes into this prophecy and he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Do you see a difference in the teaching there? There was no Pharisee in the world. There was no religious leader. I can't stand up and say, you need to listen to me because I'm God. Only Jesus can do that. To accept Jesus' teachings is to accept Jesus. All the miracles recorded are recorded to prove that he truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. Not just to say, hey, you better listen to his, his teachings because he does some cool magic tricks but to say he's somebody you've never seen before. He has the very power of creation. He has power over life and death and disease. He's God. In Matthew 17, some of the apostles see a transfiguration. The glory of God is revealed. And they go, you're different than anything we've ever seen before. After his crucifixion and resurrection in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus gives the Great Commission and he starts with, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He starts with pointing to himself. Look at who I am. Don't just take my teachings and go do it. Look at me. Look at who I am. And then the Great Commission ends with, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The ultimate question is not what did Jesus teach and how can you better obey it? The ultimate question is, who is Jesus? And have you accepted that? Everything else follows out of that. And if we don't get that question and that answer correct, none of the rest of it will make any difference in the world. I asked you at the beginning, what if you could live the teachings of Jesus perfectly? And the answer is, it would not be enough. It wouldn't be. Because Jesus clearly says what is absolutely necessary is a change of heart for this inside-out kingdom. And you can't do that. No matter how hard you try to follow Jesus' teachings, no matter how rigorous we are about the discipline of our own righteousness, we can never, ever change our own heart. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why he rose from the grave. Not just to say, hey, I'm going to really prove everything that I just taught by doing this awesome thing, but because only by having a Savior who died in our place and rose from the grave can we have the promise of a new heart. Look, some of you have been wearing yourselves out trying to obey teachings of Scripture. And on the one hand, I want to applaud the effort. On the one hand, I want to say it's great. It's great that you're digging into Scripture. Certainly, obedience is a part of the Christian life. Please don't leave here today and say, well, the pastor said we don't have to be a believer or obey any of it as long as we accept Jesus. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, if you're running around trying to obey Jesus, you need to ask yourself, have you actually accepted who he is? 
Have you come to the point of saying, He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the very Son of God. He is the promised King of the Old Testament. He is the coming judge. That's who Jesus is. And I accept that. And I trust in Him as my Savior. Have you gotten to that point? Because if you haven't, all the obedience in the world will never change your heart. But if you have, when you understand who Jesus is, and you're living in that relationship, then following his teachings, which come alive to us, we follow them not just as rules to be obeyed, but as the desires and the heart of someone who loves us and whom we love. And that's a profound difference. I find a different joy in serving my wife than I ever did obeying my mom. Don't tell my mom. I love my mom, but I didn't get it. To be very honest with you, as a kid, I looked at it and just said, she said it, therefore I should obey it. And the moment she said it and I realized I should obey it simply because she said it, that was the moment I didn't want to obey it. Because there's like a little rebel in all of us. But with my wife, it's different. If she says she wants something, I, I, I don't immediately go to, well, she wants it, therefore I must do it. I, I stop and I say, I love her. That's what it's about. This is going to bring her joy. It brings me joy to give her joy. I want to do what she's asking me to do. I love to do it. Now, not all the time. I'm not that awesome, okay? <laughs> Hypothetically. But do you see the difference? If you're just trying to obey Jesus, you're going to burn yourself out. But if you start by falling in love with him and accepting his love for you and accepting that he is your savior who changes you from the inside out, then there is a joy in the obedience. Not always, but often. And in many ways, as we look at that book, if you're joining us tonight, Desiring God, that's what that book is all about. Is there joy in the Christian life? And if so, why? And I was one that I ran around for much of my life trying to be the good little Christian and beating myself up. How can I be better? I'm always failing. I'm not obeying. I'm not obeying. How do I obey? I've got to read it more, study it more, memorize it more. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And then I got to a point of, wait a minute. Jesus Christ didn't come to earth, die on a cross, raised from the tomb so that I could do it better. He came because there's no way I could do it at all. And until I started there, none of the rest of it made any sense. Have you accepted Jesus? Are you living in that relationship? Because if you are, I pray you'll find a joy there. That's the wisdom of Jesus. It's about him, not just his wise teaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm no prophet, but I know people somewhat. And I'm guessing there's some people that have come here today and they're tired. They've been trying hard to do good things, and and that's good. They've been trying hard to do the right things, and that's good. But God, so often we try to do those things in our own power. We fill up on Scripture and its teachings, and then we turn away and we try to go out and do it on our own, and we... 
we forget that the Lord of heaven and earth is with us. He is working in our hearts from the inside out. We forget to bow before his throne and say, Oh, Jesus, I need you. And so, Father, I pray that we would have the wisdom to fall to our knees and accept your Son as our Lord and Savior, Lord of heaven and earth, the only one who can change our hearts, the one who is coming to judge the living and the dead and to set up his kingdom on earth forever. And then, God, when we do that, and every day as we walk in that relationship, then may we go deep in his teachings. Then, based on that loving, grace-filled, merciful relationship, may we find joy in living obediently to the one who loves us and the one whom we love. Thank you for the wisdom of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.